0: You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702.
1: The Naked Scientist.
2: It's twenty three minutes to uh two to three o'clock, and we bring you the segment with the naked scientist. That's Dr. Chris Smith. This is where we take your science related questions, whatever fascination, curiosity, observation, um that you may need an explanation or just a breakdown of, make sure you give us a call. This is your time with uh, the head of virology at Cambridge. Uh that is Doctor uh, uh, uh why have I forgotten now? <laughs>
1: What we you called? can't even remember my name. Yes. We've only been working together for several years. I, I know. mean, goodness.
2: What man. do we call that, Chris? Like what happens when the brain just decides to stop?
1: <laughs> do, do you know, I'm glad it's not just me, Azza. <laughs> see, I do know your name. Um, because I, I had this the other day. There's someone I've actually, someone to do with radio and broadcasting, actually. Someone I've been talking with and working on the radio. We've made hundreds of hours of programs together. Yes. And I was thinking of him and I thought, I can't remember this fella's name. What's his name? What's his name? And my mind went completely blank as someone who I, is a really good friend. And it's weird, <laughs> isn't it? How periodically you just have a, a sudden sort of one of my friends dubbed this a brain fart. Hmm. And it's, it's sort of when everything goes out of kilter and goes wonky <laughs> periodically. And then because you're panicking, because you know it's happened, it then, when we're stressed about anything, we can't remember anything, can no. we?
2: No, it's like and, it just decides to. As a result,
1: to- it then gets worse, and you, <laughs> you then think, ah, 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 and it's a bit like you you then paralysed by inaction because of one one thing going wrong. But no, my name's Chris. Yes, Doctor we, Chris actually, Smith. We do this uh, once a week on a Monday, and the funny thing is, you'd actually said that in the sentence before. I, exactly.
2: Which I exactly, and then everything just refused to connect for a moment there. Oh,
1: <laughs> uh, we've got. Well, this- if a seasoned professional can have it happen to them, I've, I feel I've got. An Excuse
2: now. Yes, yes. Uh, and I feel terrible. Am I forgiven?
1: <laughs> I'll let you off.
2: Thank you. <laughs> let's go to Keith calling us from Ethel. Hi, Keith.
0: Hi, and hi, Dr. Chris. Welcome. Um, um, I'm trying to establish the role of the an antibody test, if any, in determining if I need a booster shot. So let's say I'm in good health, I don't have comorbidities or compromised immune system. So I take an antibody test and I take the results to my GP. So the GP may suggest a booster because it's been X months since my last jab and the booster can only be beneficial or tells me my antibody count has dropped below a certain threshold. So my two questions are, is there a gold standard antibody test? And if so, what is it? And the second question is, what is the the antibody count threshold that determines if I need the booster?
2: Okay, account all right, um Keith, I think this is uh, your you asked more of these kind of questions before, so you just want to know about the gold standard if there is a particular test. I know Chris, you touched on this uh, previously when Keith called about this one, and also the threshold if there is such a thing when it comes to uh, antibodies.
1: Hi, Keith. The bottom line is that boosters are always advised regardless of prior status for certain age groups. And at the moment in the UK, for example, that's over the age of 50, but now it's, as of today, been lowered to the age of 40. And the reason for this, and that's regardless of whether people have caught coronavirus or even have coronavirus at the time they're advised to go and get a booster, you're supposed to wait 28 days. But the reason for this is that one of the features of coronavirus infections is that the immune system does not produce a lifelong response that protects you forever. And we are watching what happens to people who've either caught the infection or been vaccinated over time. And this is happening all across the world. And people are noticing that with time, the level of antibody in the bloodstream does fall. And it falls fastest the older you are. So a person who's older will therefore get less protection more quickly With the passage of time and will therefore have most to gain from a booster. We don't know what the magic threshold of antibody is yet but there appear to be two of them. There's one threshold where if you're over that level you can't get infected and so when you're first vaccinated or when you first recovered from infection and you've been severely unwell for example you have very high levels of antibody. And it's almost impossible to infect individuals, including animals in animal tests, who have really high levels of antibody. There's another threshold, which is lower than that, which is that you can get infected, but you don't become severely unwell. And we think that the reason there is this lower threshold is because you need much lower levels of antibody circulating in the blood to protect your lungs than you do to protect your nose and throat. And so, if you don't have as high a level of antibody, you can still get infected, but the infection doesn't progress into the lungs. And as long as you're between those two thresholds, then even if you catch coronavirus, you're going to be okay. And the point about a booster is it pushes everybody up at least above the lower threshold so they don't become severely unwell and possibly at least for a while above the higher threshold. So even if they um, do encounter coronavirus, they won't catch it. But at the moment, we don't know what those magic numbers are because they may differ for different age groups. And so it's a big data gathering exercise at the moment to work out how different ages change their immunity at different times, at different rates, and probably have different levels of antibody needed to protect them. Mm.
2: Oh, thanks for the question, Keith. Next, we go to Tepo in Pretoria Central. Hi, Tepo. Yeah, ma'am.
3: madam I've got two questions Yeah, but let me just start with the first one. The first is... If I'm the father to a new baby, how come they are able to detect that I'm the father when my DNA is not unique to myself? Because my DNA looks like my father and my sibling. So how can they confirm for a fact that this person is the father to this baby? Because I, my DNA can also be traced to my parents and my, my sibling. Because, I mean, they can check with my... If I'm dead, they can check my DNA check or my teeth or whatever they can find. To check if I'm one of those people in, who are still alive. Okay. The second question is, the, the DNA, how does it look like? I mean, do you take all of the DNA of a human being to test whether this is your baby or you take a portion of it? And if you take a portion of it, why you take a portion of it? Because my thing is, if the DNA is the whole tree, you need to. I need to com- comply with the whole tree, not just a branch. Because... <laughs> you are
2: one, yes absolutely yeah. okay uh tapo thank you so much for your two questions i've got them down you can listen in um yeah chris explain dna please and its workings and it's how it res- exists in the body
1: if i may recommend there's a video that we made we put it on youtube how does dna fingerprinting work we also wrote an article which is on the Naked Scientist website with the same title, and it explains this really clearly what I'm about to say. Okay. So look that up if you want to get some extra revision done. This actually traces its history back to the mid 1980s when a researcher at the University of Leicester called Alec Jeffries realized that in our genetic makeup, there are certain parts of our DNA which change much faster than other parts. And there are various reasons for that. But when you inherit uh, your DNA, you get 50% from your mum, 50% from your dad. Because there are certain parts of your DNA that will have changed in your dad or whatever, there are unique patterns in there or sequences, which, if you chop the DNA up into short pieces, you get pieces of a certain size. And what you do is to take a sample from the person who you're trying to match to, say, you, so it might be your child and you, and you chop the DNA up using what's called a restriction enzyme, which cuts DNA in very specific places. And because some parts of the DNA, as I've said, change very rapidly compared to others, you'll get more cuts in some places than others in different individuals. So different people have different sizes to different bits of their DNA. And when you marry them up, you can see that people who are related are much more likely, in fact, billions of times more likely to have bits of their DNA that are the same size, and they produce this fingerprint pattern, which are very similar. So it doesn't matter the fact that um, your grandfather had those as well. It's the fact that they are in that individual, in that unique pattern, that shows that they must have come from you. There will be some additional changes in there that are not in your grandfather, that would be in just you, that you share just with your offspring. That's how it got started. These days, because of the power of genetic sequencing, you can actually do it by reading the genetic code itself. You can actually take chunks of the DNA and read it letter by letter Mm -hmm. and do a side-by-side comparison. And this is even more accurate, although it does take longer. So there's a range of ways of doing this these days, but the technology actually goes back to the 1980s.
2: Wow. That's so fascinating. Tsepo, thank you for that. Uh, I could hear that he's really been preoccupied uh, with this question and just the workings. I hope that uh, helped him. And there's also a resource. Just go to the Naked Scientist uh, article and their podcast to listen back. Julius, you're calling from The Hill. Hello.
0: Hi, Azar and Dr. Smith. My question relates to the handwriting of uh, uh, medical doctors, that is not very legible to us lay people. I'm not sure how. I'm not sure how universal this phenomenon is, but certainly in South Africa, um, and I speak without any fear of
2: um, contradiction. Of,
0: yeah, yeah <laughs> at any corner of South Africa you can go, and people will tell you what I'm telling you that um, doc, medical doctors' handwriting is a Kilimanjaro hike mission to read for us lay people. I want to know, is this taught in medical school? Is it just a culture among medical practitioners? Can you explain this phenomenon?
1: (laughs) Julius, thank you. I've got a couple of answers to this one. One is that, um, that in the old days the drug reps used to come round to give you out cheap biros, and the biros were so bad you couldn't do anything other than write badly with them. The other is that the cynics say that by having bad handwriting, that uh, doctors are protecting themselves medico-legally, because Mm -hmm. if you can't read the handwriting, neither can the lawyer. (laughs) But in many countries, Israel, America, the UK, increasingly, It's shifting to a system of electronic record keeping, perhaps as a result of this. Mm -hmm. So now there is actually documentation in the electronic format. We don't have to read shoddy handwriting anymore. Uh, I I certainly have witnessed a deterioration in my own handwriting, which did happen to coincide with starting to practice. And I think it's a combination of being in a hurry, the dodgy biro and uh, having to, to rest the notes on the notes trolley or the patient's bed when you're trying to write in them. So actually, I welcome the fact that the electronic record makes life a lot easier and does mean that we're at the end of the road, really, for bad doctor's handwriting as an excuse for why things go wrong.
2: Well, I hope the interface is easy and quick to use. As you said, the handwriting is legible because you're in such a hurry, you know, so. Uh, yeah,
1: no, well, that's a different story. And you've hit the nail on the head because unfortunately, the people who write computer programs and make the interfaces for us to use are often not the people who actually have to use mm-hmm. them. Mm. And the consequence of that is that you end up with something that looks wonderful, but is a real pain in the backside to to use. And that is unfortunately a perennial problem with any kind of computer system. And so it, it does actually introduce more delay. Uh, so you save time on the one hand, but cost yourself time on the other.
2: Yes. Uh, Julius, maybe you should start a social media campaign looking for the neatest doctor's handwriting. Maybe someone... Out there, maybe there is a a, a medical professional out there, a medical doctor out there who's got the neatest kind of handwriting ever. You never know. You never know. Um, Let's take a break and then, Gatleho, we come to your question. But uh, first, we need to pay the bills. Um, 702. The Naked Scientist. It's eight minutes to uh, three o'clock. Let's hear from Gatleho next, calling from Mamilodi. Hi, Gatleho. Hello. How are you? We're good. Thanks for your patience there. What's on your mind today? You're
4: welcome. Okay. Uh, I've got a question here. I just want to ask the doctor. Mm. Uh, my question is that you know I've been living with uh, like one ear on my left that doesn't work, so I was born this way. So I, I thought as I was growing up, I actually thought it was normal to hear by one ear. So when I had my friends say no, my both my ears are working, but turned this." Oh. I just want to know, is it possible that we can get the ear to work without, like, having to plug my ears with those uh, hearing aids and stuff? Uh, I've got another question here. Like, uh, <sighs> uh, undes- uh testes. I just wanted to know if is it dangerous if maybe I just leave them, you know, just where they are, mm-hmm. you know, not getting them seated. Is, is it going to create, like, a, a medical condition or something, or...
2: If you leave them?
4: If I just leave them, I'll okay. it, yeah. Okay, so... Can I can I maybe just listen on the radio? Yes,
2: no problem. Thank you, Katleho. Okay. Two medical questions your way, Chris. I didn't catch
1: the second.
2: Um, And descended testicles or testes, I should say, Um, he wants to know, is there any danger, any risk to to, to leaving them that way?
1: Yeah. Okay. well, the deafness question, unilateral deafness, if it comes at birth, if it's something you're born with, Mm -hmm. then there's a range of reasons why this can happen. And one of them is infection. While you are uh, inside your mum, another is infection early in life that can cause problems for the hearing apparatus. And also, some people, there can be a reason why the structures that you need to hear with don't develop properly. Mm -hmm. So, as a result, you can get deafness for that reason. Usually, it affects both sides. And so, the fact that it's only on one side argues more likely there's some kind of structural thing going on. If it's been properly investigated, that maybe it's been concluded nothing could be done. But if it's a new thing or something which you, you noticed crept up as you were growing up, it may well be that something can be done about that and it should be properly investigated. If it's a new thing that's happened as an adult where previously you had good hearing in both ears and then it suddenly stops working on one side or progressively stops working on just one side, especially if there's tinnitus ringing in the ears or some other funny sensation... You should get this investigated because there can be a range of reasons that need treatment as to why that could be happening. In terms of um, the undescended testicle question, the answer is this is quite common, that most boys are checked when they're born to make sure that this hasn't happened, and if it does happen, it's relatively easy to fix. The condition is called cryptorchidism when you have an undescended testicle, and left in place it can have an increased risk for the testicle turning cancerous. So it's worth keeping an eye on things and it's worth getting it resolved and fixed if you have access to treatment because that reduces the risk of of that happening. But if it hasn't uh, been corrected, then it's definitely worth getting someone to keep an eye on it for you periodically to make sure that it hasn't turned into a problem.
2: Okay, there you go, Gatlehot, listening in on the radio to that answer. And here's our final one. Take a listen to the voice note.
3: Hi, Aza. Tabo uh, from Soweto. I just want to know, if uh, uh, do blind people have visions in, in their dream? Can you please ask the Naked Scientist for me?
2: Thank you. Okay.
1: Yeah, so what do blind people see when they sleep? Mm-hmm. I asked a very good friend of mine when I was growing up, who had been blind since he was born, this question, because I was intrigued. And so I'll quote Mr. Edgar Friatt, which Mm -hmm. was his name. He's died now, unfortunately, because he was very old when I knew him. Mm -hmm. But he said to me, it depends, Chris, if you are blind from birth, when you have dreams, then you don't see things because you've got no memory of seeing things. But you still hear things and experience words as though you were playing out and hearing those things for real. Hmm. It's almost like a dream, but without the visuals. Mm -hmm. But he said, on the other hand, people who have gone blind later in life, love going to sleep and dreaming, because in his words, they can see again. Because your visual memories of when you could see replay at night when you sleep during your dreams. And so you can See those memories as though you were consciously seeing again, and uh, he said some of his friends like that because it would remind them what colours were. And so, when people are describing reds and blues and greens and things by seeing them again in your sleep and reminding yourself what it was to see them, it keeps your memory of those sorts of things fresh and enables you to to continue to imagine what people are talking about, even though you can't see it anymore. So the answer to the question is it depends when you went blind. If you've ever seen in your life. You have those visual memories and you can still have visible visual dreams. If you've never seen, you won't see things in your dreams, but you certainly will dream and you certainly will experience experiences like you do when you're dreaming just without the pictures.
2: Yeah, my favourite answer of all time, Chris. We thank Mr Fryer for that. My favourite, (laughs) favourite of ever, 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 ever. Pleasure. Over the years. Thank you. That is the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris Smith.